um, like Christoph, I should probably say that this is something completely different as well. Um, I'm not sure to what extent uh, people who talked this morning might see any connections between um, the things that they're, they're interested in this, but um, uh, let's give it a go. Okay, so I'm a developmental psychologist, and what I'm interested in is basic changes in the way that children think about and process information um, about the world. And um, particularly have been interested in the developmental psychology of time. And can I start off by distinguishing between three types of temporal information uh, that we seem to process and deal with all of the time in our everyday lives. And then I'm going to work through these over the course of the talk and talk about uh, uh, a few different experiments that I've done in these different areas. So the first is information about duration, information about the length of time, so the events last for. Uh, so if we have three different events, A, B and C, say travelling to Warwick, finding the room here in Mass, listen to the talks, all of those events, of course, differ in terms of their durations, and we need to be able to, in some way, keep track of the durations of events. Now, those events differ in terms of um, whether they last for minutes or hours or whatever, uh, but we also need to be able to discriminate between events that might just differ in terms of uh, small numbers of milliseconds, and I'll say a little bit more about that uh, in a moment. So that's one type of information that we seem to be able to deal with and have to process. The other is information about temporal sequence. So not only do these events, um, they might differ in terms of how long they last for, but they also occur in a particular sequence. In this case, event A and then event B and then event C. And again, we need to be able to represent um, the order in which these events occur, process this type of information. Now, um, the, the separation of these events might be in the order of, say, um, minutes or hours or whatever, uh, but we also can keep track of sequences of events that, that last over much different types of time frames. So again, um, that are separated by seconds or milliseconds, um, days, hours, years, and so on. And quite clearly, different types of processes might be involved um, in those different circumstances. Lastly, not only um, do we process information about how long events last for and the order in which they happen, uh, but we can also, humans in particular, can do something else. We can represent where those events actually occur in time. So these events, um, so event A and event B here, uh, we think of those as having occurred in the past. Event C here, right, we listen to the talks right now, and later on hopefully we'll all go um, and have a nice drink at the reception at the end of the day. So we can also think of where these events are um, located in terms of past, present or future. And what I'll do, as I, as I said already, I'm going to touch just briefly on each of these different areas and describe some experimental research, some of which was actually done here at Warwick when I was a postdoc here, um, uh, in each of these different areas. And, but I'm going to spend um, a bit more time on the last one because I think that's probably the more interesting one for me um, at the moment anyway. Okay. So I'm going to start out with duration. Now, what do we know about the processing of duration information and how this changes as children get older? Well, we know a certain amount about this. Reasonable numbers of experimental studies have been done on this. And perhaps not surprisingly, children seem to get better at keeping track of the, the durations of time intervals as they get older. But you might say, well, that's not particularly surprising. Children get better at almost everything as, as they get older. Wouldn't it be more interesting if we could find some kind of qualitative change in, say, the types of mistakes that children make about duration or the way they go about processing information about duration? 
something that's more like a qualitative rather than just a quantitative change. And um, I'll just tell you a little bit about some data that suggests that this might indeed be the case. Uh, the experiment I'm going to be talking about here was actually done in collaboration with Elizabeth Miller, who's here in the audience, so it's nice that she's come along for this. Okay, well, how do we as psychologists go about actually um, looking at people's ability to uh, make duration judgments? Here's a very typical paradigm that you might use. Now, the durations in question here that we're talking about are very short. All the durations in these experiments are less than a second, and that's really to stop people trying to count um, the time intervals uh, that they're dealing with. So what you might do in a typical um, uh, experiment is you might initially be exposed to uh, what we might call a reference duration. Um, and you're exposed to this a number of times. So let's say it's 500 milliseconds. You become very familiar with this 500 milliseconds duration. And then all you have to do as a participant in this kind of study is when you're exposed to subsequent durations and all you have to do is say whether these are same or different um, than the reference that you encountered earlier. Okay, now you might be saying, what does exposed to duration mean here? Uh, well, you can do it a number of different ways. The simplest way is actually just to have tones, that, um, pure tones that actually last for different um, periods of time. Uh, you play pure tone that um, lasts for, say, 500 milliseconds, and then you play a range of other tones, and you see um, if people are able to discriminate between those and the one that um, they've been presented with earlier. Okay, so this is the point in which you all have to wake up and do the experiment. Um, so the experiment might go... Now, you get many, many trials like this. So this is just an example of what it might be like. Um, so this is what you might hear at the start of the experiment. You might hear this, um, I don't know, maybe 20 times. Okay, so we listen carefully. Okay, now I want you to make the same different judgments, just on the basis of duration. So is this same or different? Those are the really short and the really long ones. Okay? So, are we half and half? Some people think it's safe, some people think it's longer. By half and half? Oh, now I've lost the mouse. Here we go. Same. Okay. Give yourself a pat on the back if um, this is the one that you thought was the same and all the others are different. Uh, so typically what you do, you get, you get hundreds <coughs> of trials like this. And then you can plot nice graphs. And what this kind of graph shows here is the duration of the test stimulus here. So right, the shortest one I played you is 125 milliseconds. The longest one is 875 milliseconds. And what this shows is the percentage of times that you say, yes, that was the same for each of those durations. Okay. Now, I want you to notice two things about this graph. The first thing is that people don't make very many mistakes to these durations that are very different um, to the one uh, that they're meant to be recognising, this 500 one here in the middle. Okay? Um, but they do make some ones to the ones on either side. Okay? So that's perhaps not surprisingly. You get a sort of um, a curve that is this sort of a shape here. The other important feature here is that this curve is asymmetric. And what I mean by that is that you're more likely to make this mistake here. You're more likely to mistake a stimulus that's slightly shorter than this reference duration as being it than one that's slightly shorter. Or sorry, slightly longer than one that's slightly shorter. So that's 
your reference. People make more mistakes to that than they do to that. Okay. Right. Now, um, I didn't discover that. If I had, I would be off collecting my Nobel Prize somewhere. Um, this is true in all sorts of um, uh, discrimination of all sorts of um, dimensions of stimuli, like pitch and um, size and weight and everything like this. Well, why do we see this asymmetry? Well, the absolute difference between the short shorter stimulation, 500 to 125 milliseconds, this is also 125 milliseconds, but this is as much mass as I'm as brave, brave enough to do today. The ratio, of course, is different between these two and these two. Um, I think the mathematicians would agree on that. Thanks, Colin. <laughs> okay, so it's the ratio than the, rather than the absolute difference um, that matters. And as I say, I didn't discover that, but it's been known for a very long time. Right. So, you need to bear this in mind because it's important when you come on to see the children's data in a moment. How do we do these sorts of experiments with children? Well, we want to do them with relatively young children, so we try and embed it in a context which is sort of, you know, remotely interesting for them. So we tell them that they're listening to a bird singing and what they have to do is they have to recognise um, this bird's song. Now, it's not a very tuneful song, I, I realise that. Um, but children, <laughs> are, children are quite happy um, to, to engage with this task and go along with it. So what do five-year-olds do? Well, here's what five-year-olds do, and I'd say this is a study done along with um, Elizabeth Mailer, who's here today. Uh, uh, so again, you see duration along the x-axis here and the percentage of same responses along the y-axis. First of all, children produce these flatter gradients. This only goes up to 35 rather than 200. Children make more mistakes. I mean, it's not very surprising. But secondly, what you actually see is the shape of the curve is also different. Um, so actually, they make more errors to this stimulus, that's sh this stimulus that's slightly shorter than the one that they should be recognising, rather than the one that's slightly longer. So you see a reversal of this um, Asymmetry. Now it turns out that we can replicate this effect and not only have we found this, um, uh, another lab has found this as well. Um, so it seems to be fairly robust. Why? Why is this the case? How can we explain this? Well, if you think about what you have to do in these sorts of circumstances, uh, what you have to do is you have to hold in long-term memory some kind of representation of the duration that you've been exposed to. You have to retrieve it and then you have to compare it to the test duration and you have to then make your same different judgement. Now, imagine um, that you had a non-optimal um, memory process going on here in children, such that uh, you tended to misremember durations as being slightly shorter than they actually are. So you might think in some ways this is just a redescription of the data, but um, I'm not, wouldn't fight with you about that, but let's just walk through it anyway. So the idea here is that mis the children misremember um, a duration, the, the reference duration as being slightly shorter than it actually was, so then when they retrieve it and compare it to test durations, they're um, likely to, give, to make errors. So they're going to say that, in fact, this is the same as length of time as the test duration, whereas, in fact, this was the length of the test duration. Okay. So what I want to say is this is a memory effect. It's, it appears to be a memory effect. Um, and some data, the, the data and some others that I haven't described here suggest that young children do seem to hold distorted memory representations of these very short durations in mind and they seem to lead to these characteristic error patterns. This tendency does seem to decrease gradually with age so if you, um, if you test a whole range of children you see the tendency you see them gradually becoming more like the adults in terms of um, the shape here. 
Um, I think it is a memory effect, and as I say, we've got other data that suggests that that is the case, that I haven't got time um, to go into here. And you can actually uh, induce um, similar effects in animals with certain kind of uh, pharmacological uh, manipulations. It does seem to be, appear to be, in our experiments, in a way specific to um, duration representation, if you introduce another stimulus dimension, like pitch, for example, you don't actually see this, similar, this, this change in the psychophysical um, curve here. Uh, why might this be interesting at all? Well, um, I think I could just, if you'd let me indulge in a tiny bit of wild speculation about why it might be interesting. Um, imagine that it was the case that this wasn't just true for these very short durations, but was for, true for longer durations as well. Okay? So as you go about the world and your everyday life as a child, you're holding these distorted memory representations over lengths of periods of time. Well, this would have a profound effect on how you actually experience the world temporally. So say, for example, one day um, you, get on to your, so you get onto the bus with your mum. Okay? The bus journey that day lasts for 10 minutes. So you set up a memory representation of, of, that, of the length of that bus journey today. You come back the next day and you get on the bus again with your mum. Okay? So if you've um, misremembered that duration as being shorter than it actually is, so it's 10 minutes, but say you're misremembering it as something closer to 8 minutes, by the time eight minutes is up, you'll be thinking, why aren't we getting off the bus now? Okay, so you'd actually, um, time would seem to be going too slowly for you. Um, you'd be impatient. So um, if this actually is a general, a general truth about children, then perhaps um, it might, and this is speculation, this might actually explain um, why time seems to pass slowly um, uh, for children. Okay. So moving on from duration, this is kind of a, a topic switch now, and we'll move on to um, thinking about memory for order information. The first experiment I'm going to describe here uh, is actually work again um, that I did when I was at work here as a postdoc. So uh, the first type of experiment I'm going to describe is very, very simple. It's what's called the serial order recall task. And in this task, you're shown a sequence of items and you simply have to remember the items, but not just the items. You have to remember them in the correct order. This type of experiment has been done probably literally tens of thousands of times by experimental psychologists because it's so easy and because you also generate lots and lots of data from it. And um, the question I'm interested in is, uh, or have, was interested in maybe I don't, quite a while ago, um, what what are the distinctive developmental changes that you see uh, in this sort of task? So let me show you what the task looks like. So again, everybody has to wake up now and actually do the task. Um, what's going to happen is you're going to see a series of letters flash up on the screen. And what I want you to do is actually uh, look at the letters, try and remember them, and the order in which they actually occurred. Okay, the time, the separation between them I can't control very precisely, but normally we would control that very precisely in the experiment. Okay, is everybody ready? <laughs> okay, that's the right um, answer there. Okay, so you should have done fairly well on that because that's six items. It should be within your, within your memory span. You can compare how you did relative to the average adult. Okay, what this graph here shows you, um, this is the percentage correct here along the y-axis. Along the x-axis, what you see here um, is the serial position of the item. Was the item first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth? Okay. Well, what you see here is that adult performance um, along there, they're very good on the first item, but it varies between about 90 and about 75% here. Um, so you can gauge where you were relative to that. Seven-year-olds, um, perhaps not surprisingly, um, are not as good at this kind of task. 
and then you see these age changes as you go up. Okay, so again, um, children just getting better as they get older, but we can actually look in a bit more detail at the, at the, at the data here um, and look at the kinds of mistakes that children tend to make on this sort of task. So here's the actual list of items. If you recall an item in the wrong place, where do you tend to recall it? Well, let's imagine the item we're interested in here is R. Okay, so you might recall it one position away from its true location. You might recall it two positions away, three, four, and this is the most serious error of all. You're recalling it now five positions away from its true position. Okay, so this is, this is a small error and this is a really big one. What these graphs show over here is the proportion of errors that are either these small, medium, or sort of really big errors. And what you can see here for adults is when adults make a mistake and put an item in the wrong location, it's nearly always immediately, the location they put it in is nearly always immediately adjacent to the location in which it actually occurred. So they make very few of these serious errors here. Whereas if you look at um, young children here, they're much more likely to make these larger errors here. Okay. So not only are they likely to recall an item in the wrong position, but they're likely to recall it um, relatively far, um, for, or, or more likely than adults to recall it far from its um, uh, true position. Okay? So young children don't just remember things in the wrong order, they can get it really wrong. And uh, you can, lots of people have done developmental studies on this, and you can see marked changes right up into adolescence in terms of how accurate order memory is. So... What I want to switch to now is to kind of move away from uh, these kind of uh, more standard psychological tasks uh, in which the timescales we're talking about are very short in the order of sort of milliseconds and seconds and now move into looking at research um, in which we're talking about longer time periods. So we can actually also look at how good children are at making judgments about the orders of events in much, over much longer time periods, not just events separated by seconds. So let me describe an experiment that we did um, last year on this. And in this experiment, we conducted this experiment about May time, and that becomes important. So bear that in mind when I'm describing the data, okay? So in May time, um, we went into schools and we asked, we gave children a number of different tasks, but one of the things we asked them to do was to uh, order pairs of events relative to now. So which one of these events was a short time ago and which was a long time ago? They have to decide between the pair of events, which is a short and which is a long time ago. Okay? Now, notice this is a slightly different task than the last one because now you're asking them to make um, relative order judgment relative to now. Okay? Uh, and we asked them two types of questions, questions to do with events in the past and questions to do with events in the future. So we would say to them, okay, uh, this is Christmas and this is Easter. Which one of these happened a short time ago? Which one happened a long time ago? And of course, the right answer is to say Easter happened a short time ago and Christmas happened a long time ago. We can also ask them about the future. We, um, so we might ask them a question like, uh, this is the summer holidays, this is Halloween. Um, which one of these events is going to happen in a short time? And which one of these events is going to happen in a long time? The correct answer here for the, this future pair of events is to say that this is going to happen in a short time. It's now only a few weeks away when we ask them. This is going to happen in a long time. How do children get on uh, in this type of task? So um, these are four-year-olds here and these are five-year-olds. And I'm going to be showing a number of uh, data tables like this, so just to help you interpret them. Uh, when you see a green tick here, that means that, as a group, the children were performing at a level significantly above chance. Okay? You can get the right answer here just by guessing. Um, so if only 50% of the group are correct, um, 
that, that could be just as a result of guessing. So you're interested in whether more of the group were correct than would be expected by chance. What you see here with regard to the past events is that four and five-year-olds both do relatively well here. Five-year-olds also do well with regard to the future as well. Okay. Whereas our four-year-old group here are essentially at chance with regard to the future. So what that means here is you're asking them in May time, um, which of these is going to happen in a long time, uh, which is going to happen in a short time, the summer holidays or, or Halloween, and essentially they don't know. Okay. They, they can't give you a, uh, an answer on that. Okay, right, well, why might um, they have particular difficulties with regard to the future? Well, if you think about it, there's a simple basis on which you can make judgments about relative order with regard to the past, and that is something like the sort of um, strength of your memory trace for that item. So, um, if you think about this pair of events here, sort of Christmas and Easter, and now you're asked which happened a long time ago, which happened a short time ago, um, Potentially, you can choose um, the, the event that has um, the, the sort of st uh, strong memory um, trace for you uh, to, uh, and, and answer that that's the one that happened a short time ago. So you can use potentially something like memory trace, whereas you might have a relatively weak memory um, uh, for Christmas. That's not going to help you with regard to the future. Okay? If, you're, if you're just relying on something like memory trace, you're going to be all over the place now when you're asked about future events. Um, there's some evidence from another psychologist called William Friedman that, that this is indeed exactly what children are doing because um, he asked them uh, about different kinds of pairs of events and now he's asking that he asked them about um, pairs of events in the future. So he's saying to them which one of these two events is going to happen in a short time, which is going to happen in a long time and the types of pairs of events he gave them would be something that has only just happened, so it's now in the past but it's only just in the past and something that's um, relatively far away in the future, okay, um, like Halloween. And what he found is that in the four-year-olds, they tended to say that, um, say Easter is going to happen in a short time, okay, rather than Halloween, uh, Easter's going to happen in a long time, because Easter had only just happened for them, and it was something that was quite salient, and, and they probably had a strong memory for it, okay. Um, now, of course, we as adults, um, we don't have to do these tasks like this. We have a representation, of course, of the calendar year and where these sorts of events occur in the calendar year. And perhaps older children do as well, so that would give them an entirely different basis on which to go about trying to answer these questions. You wouldn't have to rely on these kinds of heuristics. And that leads me into really what's the second half of the talk, which is thinking about representing time itself. Okay. So... What I want to talk about um, is how we represent time as adults and whether we have any evidence of when children start to be able to represent time in these ways. And just to warn you that the answer, that I, I do not have definitive answers to these questions. The questions are very hard and it's difficult to know experimentally exactly how to go about answering them. So let's think about um, the types of temporal frameworks that we have as adults, um, the features of these, how we go about locating events in time. Um, and can I um, just distinguish between three core properties of our adult-like conception of time? Okay, the first, you could say, is that, um, that we think of time as being, uh, there was some discussion about this this morning, but let me, let me just say this in any case. We think of time as being something like a linear structure, 
um, we don't think of, uh, uh, we think of it kind of a stretching out into the past and, uh, and, and um, out into the future, and that every location in this temple st uh, structure is actually unique. Okay, so we think of time as being linear. Um, we also think of time as going in a single direction. Um, now, this may be not what the physicists think, but I think this is fairly true for us in everyday life. One way to cash out the idea that we think of time as going in a single um, direction is that we don't think that backwards causation is possible. Okay, so things in the future cannot cause things in the past. But the same is not true, vice versa. Okay, the last property here, and I think this is slightly more difficult to um, describe here, <coughs> is that um, we think of time in some ways as being a bit like a container um, and that allows us to represent the locations of events um, uh, in an event-independent way. So let me try and cash out what I mean by that. We can think of um, yesterday, five years from now, 50 years from now, a million years in the future, without having to think of those temporal locations as being occupied by particular events. Now, clearly they will be occupied by particular events. We can remember or imagine what events might occupy those locations, but it's not obligatory for us. We can think of those times independently of thinking about the events that occur in there. So just to make a quick analogy with how we represent space, if you have a representation of a room, for example, um, now that room has got particular objects in it, but you can think of the spaces in that room independently of the objects that are actually in the room there. So say we took that table away here, that would still be the same space for you, okay? That's still the same place. You could think of that place even if there was no objects in it. And all I'm saying is, that, is that's the way that we seem to think about time as well. Um, we, we seem to be able to think about it in this event-independent way without um, uh, necessarily having to think of it as being populated by particular events. Okay, so a very important developmental question, well, I think it's important, is when do children become capable of representing time and temporal locations in this way? And as I said already, I don't necessarily have definitive answers to this question. Um, well, perhaps we could start by thinking about um, other ways that you might go about representing time or temporal locations that aren't as sophisticated as this. As this. So one might be the actual use of something like time cycles or cyclical time. Um, and it does indeed appear to be the case that uh, fairly primitive creatures actually have this type of temporal sensitivity available to them. I'm using this particular example in homage to Gordon Brown from the Psychology Department of Work. He's not here, but he always uses this example when he's talking about it. Um, uh, imagine that you decide to uh, have breakfast every day out on your patio, and you have marmalade on your toast. And you're a person of... Um, uh, you like having regular habits, so you go out at 8 o'clock every morning with your breakfast and your toast, and you sit there. And what you find is that um, regularly... At 8 o'clock every morning, these little bees seem to come along and try to eat your marmalade. Um, so what seems to be happening is you've got these um, creatures who seem to be tuning into the time of day at which um, the marmalade is going to appear in this location. Okay? So they seem to have some sort of sensitivity um, to when it's marmalade time and be able to, in some ways, be sensitive to a cyclical or repeating, uh, a, a, a repeating time pattern. Uh, the same, of course, might also, is also true of, of young infants. So anyone who's had a baby who's tried to get it into some kind of routine of feeding and sleeping uh, will see, will have experienced that the baby will very quick, relatively quickly, if you're lucky, um, 
uh, Conte expects uh, to be fed at particular times and, and sleep at particular times and so on. Uh, another cyclical way of representing time might be with respect to known event sequences. So here's daily life for a kid, um, or for some kids anyway. Um, you go to bed, you get up in the morning, sleep, 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 wake up, actually wake up, you get ready, you go to school, you go to class, you have your lunch, you go to class, you go home. This kid goes on the internet, dinner, work, 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 I'm on the internet again before they go to bed. Okay, so this is a daily cycle. And what we know is that young children are, are actually relatively good at learning these sorts of um, repeated event sequences. And what might be the case is that this might be um, the more basic way in which we have of representing um, the temporal locations of events. So you might represent an event where it occurs relative to familiar events in a sequence. So when something happens, you represent um, where it is relative to the other events in, 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 in the particular sequence which unfolds. And as I say, quite a lot of research now has established that children are fairly good at learning these kinds of um, repeated sequences, not just for the day, but sequences in terms of say, like what happens when you go and visit a restaurant or what happens when you go to a supermarket and so on. And indeed, uh, by the time children are going to school, um, this is a task that they might be given um, in nursery school or, or when they first start school, they might be given a, a set of pictures of um, the events in a day and asked to reorder it. And, and even relatively young children should be able to do this. Okay, so none of this has answered our question yet of when children actually um, might be able to think about time in an adult-like way. Well, uh, I want to talk about... Um, just two of these core properties here and the type of experimental evidence that you might try to appeal to if you were trying to answer when children um, ha are able to think about time in such a way that, they're, 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 that um, <coughs> uh, it's adult-like in these senses. And I'm not going to say anything about um, later, I'm just going to skip on to the next one here, the idea that um, time goes in one direction, that there's no such thing as backwards causation. Well, um, we all, I don't know what the physicists would say, but I think in our everyday lives we would say that there is no such thing as backwards causation. The causes must come before their effects. How can we test if children believe this or understand this or realise this? Well, we can show them sequences of events where A happens, then there's an outcome, and then an event B happens, and now we ask them which of these two events actually caused this outcome here. Okay? So... Uh, let me show you a typical task, and I've had a PhD student who's been working on this task, and she spent three years of her life on this task, so, uh, but I'm going to summarise her findings in two minutes. Um, in this task, what happens is that event A is that you drop a red ball into a box. Okay, So that's your event A. Then what happens is a teddy bear pops up in the middle of the box, Okay, and now you drop um, a white ball into the other side of the box. So this is your A outcome C sequence here and you simply say to them which of these two balls made the teddy bear pop up you give them lots of trials like that if need be what do you find uh, what you find is more or less by the, t the age at which children are able to you can sit them down and get them to do a task like this they are performing above chance so three year olds are above chance uh, but they are worse than four year olds and one question that she was interested in, Michelle, my student, was why do three-year-olds not perform perfectly on this kind of task? What's difficult about it for them? 
And um, one answer you might give here is that maybe what's difficult for them is actually not realising that causes must precede their effects, but maybe they just can't remember the event sequence very well. So this, say, might be the real event sequence, the red ball drops down, then the teddy, then you drop the white ball down. If you misremembered that sequence as the white ball dropping down, then the teddy, then the red ball, okay, wouldn't be surprising if you gave the wrong answer. And indeed, children get multiple trials, so perhaps they do um, misremember things. Well, uh, just to summarise Michelle's data, we can rule this out as an explanation. Okay? Um, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be the case that uh, children... Uh, you can separately ask children about the order in which events actually occurred, and it doesn't seem to be the case um, that their poor performance of the trials is due to misremembering the order of events. So, um, without going into any great detail, I think it is possible to give um, a quite radically different explanation about what, what might be different about thinking of three-year-olds and older children in this kind of task. And I don't really have much evidence for this hypothesis, but let me just float it anyway. Um, one possibility is that uh, the younger children aren't actually necessarily explicitly reasoning about before and after relationships in this kind of task. It's only the older children that are able to do that. Well, you might say, well, if they're not reasoning about before and after relationships, how are they getting it right at all? Why are they doing above chance? Well, um, possibly they've just got some kind of default um, mechanism or process or principle at play whereby if you get a, see an event and then an outcome, you simply ignore anything that comes after that event as being causally relevant. Okay? So now the outcome occurs, you just ignore everything after that as being causally relevant to the cause of this event here. Okay? So that would be kind of default encoding principle. Right? That isn't the way that we, as adults, would um, do that kind of task. We would realise, of course, that causes cannot precede the effects. We'd be able to think about the order in which events actually um, happen in time and be able to isolate this event for a principled reason. Okay? Um, so what I'm suggesting is that there may be a developmental shift from reliance on some kind of default encoding mechanism to actually being able to explicitly reason about before and after relationships. And I'm going to provide further evidence for that in a moment. Okay. Um, the last property that I want to think about, how much time have I got? Um, eight minutes. Eight minutes, okay. The last property that I want to think about here is um, event represent independent representations of location. Okay, this is a hard one to look at experimentally. But let me try and uh, suggest that there's a way that you can do it. And I want to, so what we're trying to demonstrate is that children can represent and reason about temple locations in a sequence in this event independent way. And what I want to do is kind of just contrast it with um, a way of um, uh, uh, dealing with ordered event sequences that doesn't involve event independent representation. So a simpler way, first of all. Okay, this is very simple. Uh, imagine you have a toy. Okay, and first of all, the toy is put in the red cupboard, then it's put in the blue cupboard, and now your task is to find the toy. Okay, so say you've observed it going into the red cupboard. Okay, you can update your model of where it is. Now you see it moved into the blue cupboard, that's fine. Okay, so now somebody asks you, where's the toy? You can say it's in the blue cupboard. Now, you haven't had to think about event order in order to do that. Okay, you've just had to keep track of events as they unfold in this ordered manner. But say you do something different, okay? Say you place 
children in a situation in which they know that a short event sequence has happened, okay, but they don't actually know what those events are as the events are actually happening, okay? So they know there's something happening here, then something else happens here, okay? But they don't know what comes in these slots here, okay? And then you provide then um, you provide them with the information to put in those slots retrospectively, okay? What I'm trying to argue is if you can put children in a situation like this and then they can still answer the question at the end of it when you provide them with the information to put in these slots retrospectively, maybe you've got evidence that they've been able to do this, that they've been able to represent these um, locations in the temporal sequence without the events in them, then they've stuck the event information in when you've given it to them and they're able to come up with the right answer. Now, that might all seem too abstract, the task itself is very simple. Uh, this is the hairbrush task, as it's become known. Um, and this is work I've done actually in collaboration with Christoph, who's also here, so that's nice. Um, in this task, it's very cute because we have a doll's house uh, with different rooms in it, okay? And these are our two dolls, John and Peter. And John and Peter are two dolls uh, that always do things in a particular order. So children are pre-trained on this, that John always goes first and Peter always goes second or something like that. Okay? They learn that and they can answer that um, perfectly. Um, and then the dolls visit these different rooms in the house and they do things. They get to the critical room here, which is the bathroom. And now remember, these are three and four and five-year-olds we're working with here, so it has to be you know, fairly straightforward. We've got our two cupboards, our blue cupboard and our red cupboard, and here's our little hairbrush. And the hairbrush is the object that's going to go in the cupboard. Okay, so John and Peter visit the rooms in the house, then they get to the bathroom, and at this point, children don't see what happens. Okay? Don't see what happens, but they're told that one of the dolls puts the hairbrush in one of the cupboards, then the other doll gets the hairbrush and puts it in the other cupboard but they don't know which cupboard, okay? So they've got like these empty, they have to have these kind of empty placeholder representations here. And you know, you don't give them the event information until afterwards, okay? So this is the kind of story you give them. This, the, they, the, these are John and Peter. John goes first, Peter goes last. They go into the bathroom. Each doll puts the hairbrush in one of the cupboards in turn, but they're not told which cupboard at the time. Okay, and then at the test phase of the experiment, here's what you do. The dolls come out of the bathroom, and then, first of all, you ask them the control question. Okay, can you remember which of the dolls brushed their hair first and last? Children can do this, okay? This is a, they're ceiling at this. And now you give them the event information. So what you do is, you say, okay, they tell you which came first and which came last, and now you show them the cupboard that each doll put the hairbrush into. Okay, and now you say, where is the hairbrush right now? Now, this for adults just seems ridiculously easy, okay? Um, this is John, he went first, he put it in the red cupboard. This is Peter, he went second, he put it in the blue cupboard, so it's in the blue cupboard, okay? So, older children and adults just find this trivially easy. How do we find um, younger children get on? Well, five-year-olds are above chance on this sort of task, uh, whereas four-year-olds are not above chance on this kind of task. And we've replicated this a number of times using this paradigm and also using similar types of paradigm. Okay. So at this age, um, the four-year-olds seem to have difficulty uh, with doing something like this here, where they set up a representation with these kind of empty slots in it, and then they stick in the event information when they're given it. Okay. 
Right. Um, so that's uh, just to remind you of the structure of the task. And then they have to stick in these pieces of event information and come up with the right answer. Okay, the very last piece of evidence I want to give you here. So, so sorry, let me just recap here. I, I think that there's something going on critically in this age period between about three and five years in terms of the way children are actually able to think and reason about time. And um, they seem to be developing a way of thinking about time that's much more flexible and less rigid um, than earlier in development. And there's some additional evidence from this if we actually look at children's um, language comprehension. So um, the last experiment I'm going to talk about here is one in which children actually, um, were, we looked at children's understanding of the terms before and after. Okay? So you could say that some of the experiments I've talked about previously, um, although we didn't use the words before and after in those experiments, Okay, so the, the ones about Halloween and Christmas or the ones about the dolls or the ones about the teddy bear and so on, we didn't use the words before and after in those experiments. But you might think that before and after reasoning might be involved or you need to have some grasp of before and after um, concepts in order to be able to do those tasks properly. Well, what, how good are children actually at understanding the terms before and after at this age range? Well, in this particular experiment, what we gave children was one of two types of sentences. Um, one you could call a matching sentence. And a matching sentence is one in which the order in which events are described in the sentence is the same as the order in which the events actually occurred in the world. Okay? So the girl put her hat on before she or sorry, put her coat on before she put her hat on. A non-matching sentence is one in which that's not the case. So the order in which you actually describe the events themselves is different than the order in which the events actually happened. So before the girl put on her hat, she put on a coat. This happens second, this happens first, but you describe the events in the other order. And you might think that, um, so that's just to recap on this, you might think that understanding matching sentences might be easier for young children than understanding these mismatching sentences where they have to do a little bit of mental um, uh, juggling in order um, to uh, match up the, the, the descriptions in the sentence with how things actually happened in the real world. So how can we test this? Um, well, we can uh, read children out a sentence. So, say, so just memorise this sentence here. Before the girl put on her hat, she put on her coat. So we'd read children a sentence like that. Before the girl put on her hat, or she put on a coat. And then um, we would show children little video clips like this. Now, I'll move these rolling on. Okay. And all children have to do is they have to match up the sentence that you read them out to them with the video clip. They have to choose the appropriate video clip. Okay. Um, and we can give them lots of different um, versions, different clips like this. And then we can look at how they do in terms of their comprehension. Now, here's the data, sort of data that we get from four- and five-year-olds. Again, so it's the sort of critical age range that we're interested in. Uh, what we find is that four- and five-year-olds do equally well on the matching sentences here, uh, but, um, in fact, only our five-year-old group were above chance on the non-matching sentences. This isn't something that I've discovered. I've replicated this. Other people have found this before, although um, the age ranges are not, haven't always been the same in all, uh, all experiments. Um, all of, the only reason I'm, I'm bringing this in here is first it's relevant to, uh, I think, pinpointing this age range as being important. And also what we did uh, in this experiment that I, I, haven't, I haven't got time to go into in huge detail is we gave children other tasks, like the sort of tasks that I talked about previously, 
which we think might be testing something like uh, the ability to reason properly about before and after relationships. And we looked at correlations between comprehension of these sentences and um, children's um, performance on those particular cognitive tasks. And we found that performance on the non-matching sentences correlated with performance on our cognitive tasks there. Okay? So that suggests something about um, there being potentially this ability um, to start to reason flexibly about before and after relationships in time that uh, you don't just see in terms of children's performance and tasks, but that also seems to influence um, their ability to understand the sentences that are spoken to them. Okay, so having said all that, uh, and no, I'm probably a minute or two over time now, we don't know when children actually do have adult-like representations of time. We've got these little clues from the sort of data that I've just talked about, and I take this to be really one of the major unanswered questions about development, and there are very few people working on this. Um, but I think we can conclude from this sort of evidence that children's ability to think about time in a flexible way does seem to improve between the ages of about three and about five years. We've got fairly, you know, different converging pieces of evidence to suggest that. Okay, thanks folks.